Hello and welcome to the Inheritance Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. I've been in the family office world for 20 years and I've always been interested in what people do with their fortunes and what those fortunes do to them. George Marcus wrote a book you probably haven't heard of, but it's well worth finding. It's called Lives in Trust. It was published in 1992 and it's currently $146 on Amazon. Professor Marcus is an anthropologist who studied tribes in Tonga, then applied what he learned to study dynastic wealth in families starting in Texas. The book has great essays on the H.L. Hunt family, who tried to corner the silver market in 1980, the Bingham family, who fought over a newspaper chain in Kentucky, a study of two very different family fortunes in Galveston, Texas, and an analysis of one of my favorite books, Old Money by Nelson Aldrich. He discusses the importance of your image of your ancestors and the creation of family ideology, the emptiness at the center of the Getty fortune, and a great essay by his collaborator, the late respected philanthropic scholar Peter Dobkin Hall on the efforts of the Rockefeller family to control the narratives told about them over the decades. In our discussion today, we talk about his career, the book, his interesting concept that he calls the dynastic uncanny, and his fascinating dive into the meaning of nobility in current-day Portuguese aristocracy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with George Marcus. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things about your work is you're coming at this from an anthropological perspective. Mm. And so I might ask some very general questions like, how would you define culture and, and why is it so important the way culture is transmitted. At least in the development of anthropology here, culture was a, a keystone in the development of contemporary fieldwork-based anthropology because uh, cultures could be located in terms of historically of traditions in particular places. The primary method of anthropology is ethnography, which is very much person-to-person and studying social processes, micro or close up. Which came first, I don't know, but the idea of culture or the tradition of the study of culture fit that quite well because cultures are practiced by observed humans in small groups. And then, of course, you have, with media and stuff, you have extensions. But it suited the basic dimensions of the anthropological method, which is participant observation. And by the way, much more important, the idea of culture in American anthropology than in, let's say, English anthropology, which for a long part of the history, that was the other form. For English anthropology, it was social structure. But these are, for me now, active terms that facilitate this kind of distinctive kind of research. Frankly, because of the times and the way things have moved, culture will always be at the foundation of anthropological research, but it's not a topic of a great deal of discussion and controversy now. I think because this whole idea that anything that's local and observable and distinctive as culture is now subject to global forces and the intensity of culture, which is still studied by anthropology, becomes people, anthropologists become distracted by the kind of extending processes. If you focus on something, suddenly you're into cyberspace or markets, etc. That was really what was behind in the 90s, the kind of adaptation of the intensive study of cultures in world systems and so forth that I was interested in. I suppose that would apply as well to the concept of family. We, th we think of family as being a kind of a concentrated thing, but it isn't. It's obviously embedded in a much, much larger context now. A central topic in classic anthropology was the study of kinship systems. And that had to do with the idea that the Western family unit was developed in many different ways across cultures. And in terms of this method of ethnography, which is 
up-close, hands-on, participant observation. The most immediate thing that you observe, phenomenon you observe in most cultures, are family relations. In other societies, these are extended into kinship systems. So there indeed are households, families, but they're embedded in Oh, great variety of systems of inheritance and attitudes toward the material world and things like this. And to be honest, this is the kind of bedrock of anthropological knowledge on which studies of religion and all the other things that anthropologists have encountered rest. The study of kinship is, and the family, is central. The key idea in anthropology is in the relativism of things. And this had to do with when anthropology developed in the 19th and early 20th century, the great barrier was ethnocentrism of the West. So people who explored other parts of the globe would find that people would find that the family system of one sort or another was universal, but they would think of it in terms of Western families. And if you really go into the culture of just small family groups, you find an incredible variety. Rules about marriage, rules about authority, rules about relationship to wealth, for instance. And so you might say that preoccupied anthropology from the late 19th century all the way into the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And it's still foundational for the field, even though what people are actually studying now, particularly in the contemporary world. I'm speaking now of social and cultural anthropology. The other branches of anthropology are archaeology and biological anthropology. I'm a social cultural anthropologist, but there have some, been some interesting shifts in recent years in connection with those other subfields. But for the longest time, anthropology was like the uh, sociology of non-Western peoples. When did you know that you were going to study anthropology? Did you oh, study at undergrad? No, not at all. I wasn't in, socialized in the university in anthropology, but many anthropologists can tell you the story. The inspiration in anthropology is they didn't discover it in education, but they discovered it in some life experience, travel, just a fascination of the encounter with difference. In my case, I was living in a small town in Pennsylvania, and my sister, one that my oldest sister had gone to Vassar and married a Yale graduate who was going to graduate school in anthropology. And it was that brother-in-law long since passed, who introduced me to the field. I They went to what was then Malaya, now Malaysia, and they studied Aboriginal peoples. And really, they were. he was interested particularly in, they were very small groups who, you might say, isolated themselves in the mountains from more powerful groups on the plains. And they were they, if you want, they practiced nonviolence, and he actually wound up writing on them distinctive as a non-aggressive, nonviolent people. But anyhow, the long and the short of it was he really switched me just by these personal accounts from fieldwork in Malaya to anthropology. But my undergraduate was at Yale, and frankly. I came into anthropology at a time when whatever specializations they were doing, I found not very exciting, but mature. They were arcane debates. So actually, I didn't do much anthropology at Yale. I did politics and economics. And then I got a fellowship to study at Cambridge in uh, England, and these were really very influential centers of anthropological thinking at the time. So for a year in the late 60s, I studied uh, anthropology intensively in England. I studied the British version of social anthropology, which is basically what I've described, studying close-up small groups and how they reproduce themselves, what their ideologies are, what they're like, families in other words. 
in most places that anthropologists work. You were there during a pivotal period where it went from the old establishment to the this, I was at the beginning of that. I was dur- there during the reign of Kingman Brewster, mm-hmm. last of the really Ivy League presidents. It was his job, though, to open Yale up because it was one of these schools that would bring in pe- the re- requisite number of people from the private schools and a few leftover high schools. And he, I was very lucky. He was into expanding the pool And I must say, I was, yeah, this is the distinction. I was the last class that went through Yale in the old way, meaning no women. They came in the year after I graduated. So my mine was the traditional experience of all male Yale, very distinctive. George Bush was in my class. I didn't know George Bush, but he was in my class, and it was very class, what do you call it, inflected, yeah, I was, I remember. But so I was not much of a, I was a high school graduate from, we lived actually in southwestern Pennsylvania in towns that were there because of the steel industry, et cetera. My father was a merchant. That's a good lead into the next question. There was a wonderful book. It, it just came out. It was a former student at Harvard. His name is Patrick Schmidt. And he wrote a history of the Department of Social Relations at Harvard, which started yes, at I the have, end. I have the book over here. The Department of Social Relations was basically a combination of anthropology, sociology, and mm-hmm. part of psychology. It started at the end of World War II. And it interestingly ended in 1972, which I guess is when, right about yes. the time that you were there. Yes. So the question is, what was the anthropology department like post-social relations? I got into social relations because I was interested in the inner, the ethos of interdisciplinarity and the, the project it had been. I had no idea that it was decomposing. <laughs> and so I entered Harvard as a graduate student in anthropology focus, but in this social relations. And naively, I, di- I really didn't know that it was breaking up. And I wanted a degree of in social relations with an emphasis in anthropology. I wound up like on my diploma and stuff, anthropology. They retreated. And to be very honest, the anthropology program had a bunch of senior faculty members who had made their names by creating the getting large grants and creating these huge projects, one in Brazil, one in Mexico, one in uh, South Africa on Bushmen, on hunters and gatherers, et cetera. But these were all oh, more than mature. They were, they had a distinguished group of people, each one that they had graduated, et cetera. But it was in the uh, stage of dissolution. And w- about my third year there at graduate school, I got pushed back into uh, the anthropology department, which was very much in need of a renovation, which did occur, but after I left. So I came into anthropology at a time. What's amazing that in the kind of story I'm telling is that I learned my anthropology in this deeply personal way through letters from the field from my brother-in-law. I studied it on the margins of the British anthropology for a year as a Henry Fellow. I had two years in the Army in which I stayed connected to anthropology and actually did field work. And anthropologists are very much defined by the research they do in the sea islands and then i went to harvard and i was i wanted a really interdisciplinary approach and i and there it was breaking up and in that book by schmidt which i've read anthropology is already uh, outside social relations it was always a poor an odd cousin because people in sociology economics but didn't really anthropology was quote unquote semi-exotic they didn't really understand it, but they had am- amazing graduates and influential graduates during the high period from the Harvard program. But I, I got there too late. So it was, 
I was in ether space there at Harvard while I was imbibing really a lot of interesting, diverse stuff. But as a focused training in anthropology, not wonderful. Anyhow, I joined someone's project, an unknown younger professor who created this project in Fiji. It was in legal anthropology. The interest was examining very much the processes of conflict resolution in small-scale societies. And that's a subfield legal anthropology, which has alternately been static and thrived. It's I would say that in looking back at legal anthropology, it was a, a good thing to be located in, particularly if you wanted to move beyond the study of small-scale aerial-based societies in Africa, Latin America, but one to look at, a, from the point of view of ethnography, a universal phenomenon. But that's the project that I joined, and that's the project that sent me to the Kingdom of Tonga. And Tell us what you learned in Tonga. All these societies which build, let's say, political structures from family structures incorporate what is the whole idea of the function of political authority is to unite disparate elements in controlling the flow of goods by whatever. And there's a great diversity and array, but it's uh, the only justification for centralized political authority or something beyond the family is the collection and redistribution of wealth, whatever that happens to be in those societies. Often it has to do with basic uh, organization of agriculture and uh, but also anything in grades into what religion and the sort of what goes along with economics in any of these small scale societies. In my case, it was Tonga and as part of the general cultures of Polynesia, what goes along with this kind of accumulation of wealth is a relationship that we generally put into the that we segment off. Here's religion, here's economics, here's family. And all those things are blurred from a Western point of view in these small-scale societies. Tonga was a chiefly society. It's it was the last it's the last governing kingship in in Polynesia. And the opportunity was to see how at the village level this kind of patron-client system of collection and redistribution of whatever wealth was in that society operated. And it, it was still observable and, and regnant. By no means was Tonga a primitive, quote-unquote, primitive society. It was, they were existing on the edge of modern economies, but they were quite cosmopolitan, actually, in their understanding of the way the world worked. It's just that they were a very small little item in the world system of economies. And so a lot of it had to do with people bringing back wealth from working abroad, etc. But it was not a, shall we say, a New Guinea kind of situation where you had totally enclosed peoples in tropical forests living by cultures that were still very hardly contacted. This was a kind of sophisticated, very old society that was in various ways integrated into the world system, such uh, economic system, etc., such as we in the West understood it in the late 20th century. And so I was very interested in not maintaining the standard frameworks for studying very isolated people, but I was very much interested in how they integrated into, even though they're just a little bump on the map, they had an incredible system of, you might say, family system in their own society. I was interested in how that thrived and continued on in terms of their articulation as a minor society in the world system. So it presented some uh, the 
classic doctrine in anthropology is cultural relativism, the idea that, you know, things that may not be considered important from the perspective of one culture to another are extraordinarily important within the cultures that you're addressing. And the idea is that to understand what's going on, you have to understand them as kind of internal system without losing perspective that how they exist in the world. So that's always been a problem in anthropology. They delve deeply into small cultures and sometimes lose perspective on how at the very same time these small cultures are articulated with subcultures, shall we say, are articulated with big systems. My career very much developed in studying small cultures, but also understanding how they're articulated in larger systems. And you could say, and I'll stop there, is that was the ethos of the social relations system. The idea that all these disciplines that had developed since the 19th century picked off certain things to look at as specialized perspectives and very productively. But social relations was the idea that in the end, they're all interconnected and that you have to understand these interconnections, in their case, among various disciplines. Psychology, social psychology was big. Anthropology, sociology was big, economics, but anthropology, as always, is a kind of delightfully marginal field and not unimportant, but just, and it retains that marginality. Going back to these small-scale societies that you're mm -hmm. studying in Tonga, would you say the difference between those societies and the moderns is the lack of institutions? Is that one way to look at it? Yeah. That most of it was kinship mm -hmm. and religion-based, but you mm -hmm. didn't have this sense of a disembodied institution. And in our the context in which we're having this broader discussion, the absence of the nuclear family, although you have to understand that doesn't lead suddenly to odd alternatives. They have marriage, they live in households, there are different rules, but those family units are constantly being pulled in the direction of larger spheres of obligation and participation. So you might say the nuclear family, as we've developed it in the West, in terms of world types, for a long time was in the minority, and particularly the modern nuclear family, which is the cradle of people's development. And you could identify family units, but they're absorbed in other kinds of principles of relationships, such that connections with other kinds of kin, what we would call cousins and stuff, is much more elaborated. And the, the, the classic idea of the tribe or lineage develops from that broader view. So for a long time, the core of anthropological study was comparative kinship systems. And the idea, of course, was not to look at the Western truncated kinship system of the nuclear family as the core, but to look at, to be open-ended about it. You have various kinds of clans and other kinds of relationships that are central in other kinds of societies. But the study of kinship, which included the family, was the basis of anthropology until the mid to late 20th century. And everybody who studied anthropology, and kinship had to do with the kinds of issues that in this work I did on dynasties you're interested in, who inherits what, what happens to reputation, first generation, who do you marry? who can be married. Marriage rules are extremely important in the study of kinship. I think you said something, and this definitely will relate later to mm -hmm. the dynastic families, is that the difference between these societies and the moderns, are us, is uh, we don't have this sense of clanship. Oh, definitely. When you say we, you mean because well, anthropologists would always be interested in variations. You mean like in American society? We'll call it, yes. Yeah. The moderns. Yeah, no, definitely not. And you have an ear for the way people use categories in everyday life. And clanship, whenever I hear about it as a, what do you call it, quixotic thing, which doesn't exist, but people would say, oh, they're different. They're a clan. 
or they're the Hatfield and McCoys. Clanship is something, not necessarily disparagingly, but I think it often has the connotation in American society of, I use this term extremely advisedly, something more primitive. Not primitive, but pre-developmental. Something that was incomplete in the development of a family or something very odd or exotic. When people jo joke about it, I think that I've listened very carefully to how people in different parts of American society and everyday life evoke the alternative to what they have. Clanship is a sign either of <laughs> primitivism in our own environment or kind of luxury good, not necessarily one you want to be burdened by always, great wealth. It's an oddity if you go beyond the expected nuclear family, which is also, there's also always a diagnosis. I'm talking about in everyday life, about it breaking down, not thriving, but that's the unit we're committed to culturally. There's another dynamic that you identified, which I, I think is important, is and I don't have the exact quote, but I think it was in return for high status, the chiefs are often forced to redistribute mm -hmm. their accumulated wealth. Is that something that's accurate about those societies? The only slight emendation of what you said uh, that I would make is those societies in which redistribution is the normal thing, the people who are redistributors do not feel forced. Their power lay in not... Yes, accumulating wealth, but not for their own purposes. Their power lay in redistributing it. So redistribution is, what do you call it, the cultural norm. In other words, they gain power by, or prestige, as in our own political as domains of our own political systems and others that and also, I think, in dynastic family systems, too, that redistributors of wealth. I'd only qualified by commenting on your word force. But that suggests a totally different normative order of values in which this kind of process of redistribution occurs. But the status itself results from the understanding of that dynamic. Accumulators of wealth very often are in a kind of let's say, family subculture uh, in which they don't expect to use it for their own ends and they're forced to redistribute. The analog of chiefly societies in our own are people who are concerned with the redistribution of wealth in a family or kin context. So that would include the kind of families I was studying in Galveston, the kind that Mr. Hughes is professionally concerned with. It's where governed by a certain body of law, which creates the instruments or defines the instruments and the need for expertise, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the non-technical aspects of doing that. I'm trying to suss out, I think, the analog yeah. to the, the idea of the patrician culture which is mm -hmm. um, obviously a much later development. The idea of the patrician culture is you give back, and that's somehow tied up in where their authority comes from. Right. That's the kind of philanthropic tradition or exactly what you've said, this issue that in the societies that anthropologists have traditionally studied of the redistribution of wealth. It's not a simple matter of gathering together, here's a pile of wealth, you get this, you get that, you get the other. There's a whole, if you want, philosophy of life <laughs> that is enacted in doing that duty. And the same among us, it's just immensely complicated in terms of history, controversy. Yeah, the, the social ideologies around that are just much more complicated. They're not uncomplicated in kin-based societies. They're just embedded in myths, mythology, stories, legends, belief in gods, stuff like this. Different kind of society, but small scale, still into their basic morality is still, and ethics are discussed still in terms of myths, whereas in our society, highly differentiated, secularized, largely when it comes to economic matters. Not always, but yeah, very much more complicated. But same function of redistribution. Let's talk about 
your book about dynastic wealth, lives and trust, oh, which yeah. was published in 1992. Yeah. You mentioned at the in the preface that most books about elites are either muckraking or hagiography. Yes. Um, how did you approach these families that you met in Galveston from an ethnographic point of view? How did you think about it? Well, as a result of my experience in Tonga, and we were in our discussion getting at the key concepts, and that is, and I believe that they are the same key concepts that fiduciaries of wealth in these families deal with, and that is the redistribution or, and it is redistribution, not the accumulation of wealth across generations in a particular culture in which wealth itself has sounds too abstract where you know wealth takes certain forms in the societies i was working with in tonga it was literally food connected to what the gods value or ancestors those who are not religion in other words values and redistribution in our own society where economy and religion are very much separated although not so much in families very often. <laughs> the things that become very differentiated in contemporary modern complex societies get fused again in dynastic families because of the, which should I say, non-specialized nature of family issues. <laughs> family issues, emotions, interests get all mixed up in what people hold materially together and not just store, but increase. So the health of families in the West or that I was dealing with very often is determined by the health of the wealth, <laughs> the health of the accumulation. And very often, if it's not thought about or it doesn't fit into a value system, it becomes a problem because its wealth is growing, but it has no, it's not tied necessarily to positive values. That's a, a work that has to be done within the family. And very, in, in modern families, unlike Tongan family system or family systems that anthropologists study, are not well suited to do that because our institutional orders have been very separated. So re religion is another matter, uh, economics, politics, whatever, become specialized spheres of knowledge, and people think of them in separate ways. But what wealth does, sharing wealth, or surplus, if you want, not struggling for your kind of means of everyday life, it reintegrates all the things that we separate in contemporary culture. And we're not prepared. Most people don't see this as a big problem because they don't have wealth. But wealth creates this kind of problem for those that share it. How they take on the problem or not is the sociology of dynasty, which is what I was studying in the Galveston book, because I found such a, a wonderful lab, if you want. I think probably the key quote of the book is the dynasty is a commonsensically a family but after much experience with this form of social organization i find that it is primarily a fortune instead yes and how did you come to that conclusion it's a fortune with the family name because just culturally that's the way we organize categories but the family could i i'm glad you took that because i haven't gone beyond that wisdom the what what supports the wealth and what supports the family in terms of social organization institution expertise it supports wealth more easily than it supports families because in our own society as it's developed families are not expected to go on as clans we emphasize in family development your parents look after you and then you're independent wealth complicates that Right. And so it, it's a telescoping of the same problems that occur in any family of people becoming independent, people arguing over what property there is, but fortunes stay together beyond the will of families to stay together. 
And therefore, if you have contemporary families glued to something that they are connected to, whether even people who uh, and people who are in line with that or people who rebel against it, the fortune. I think there's a quote at the beginning of the book from the writer, but a fortune is a store of wealth with a variable family factor around homes. Yeah, homes. Yeah, Yeah, that wonderful quote. And that's what I mean, that the institutions of society are more organized for the perpetuation of quantities of private wealth or law, investment, et cetera, than it is in the perpetuation of family. From the point of view of anthropology and from your work in Tonga especially, why do you think money confers authority, especially moral authority? There's not a simple answer to that question. I don't want to, but it may seem like I'm avoiding it or running away from it. I'm really not. How cultural value is given to money, the fact that it must be given to money, that money is a big inherited wealth surplus, is inherited and that it has a moral significance that the culture no longer normatively gives it such that we can ask this question becomes hard to answer. For instance, if we were doing comparative, if you were asking me why that were the case in Tonga, I would say the relationship of the managers of the wealth and who those people are and what they value and what they think they're doing are very much in alignment. In fact, in those societies, all that stuff that's accumulated is not wealth in our sense that could be individually owned by anyone. It's presumed to be the property of the group, and there's an authority of a, a supernatural dimension to it, authority of ancestors, etc. I would go deeply into belief systems and structures of activity, much different from our own. But in our own, I think it's the culture of individualism, the idea that at the core of that wealth is a founder, generally, or a founding family. And as time goes on, the money, the wealth, which is no longer just something material like a house or a car, it could be symbolically the material stuff plays an important role in transmission of wealth in Western societies. But we have to go into that here just to say that an important moment for the anthropologist is the distribution of personal or material wealth when somebody dies. It could be through the will, or it could be through what somebody wrote a book once called The Grab, and what it is, the heirs would go into the house and they would have rules for taking personal items of the dead, that kind of thing, or families in their informal culture have this kind of resolution of who gets the material personal wealth. These things are very important from the point of view of anthropology because they reveal a certain type of mini subculture of wealth management in different kinds of families. And that's where you that's where you start in the study of dynastic families. You look at you know what's there to that the family has invented or that experts have invented for it. And the core of the of the dynasty book were these two opposite families in Galveston, the Moody's and the Kepners. That's what made Galveston so attractive. How did you meet them, and what was your interview process like? I didn't interview the Moody family. I give an inordinate importance to inside outsiders, managers of wealth, people, particularly people who are more not just doing a job, but are more committed to thinking about and managing the wealth as a part of their expertise. And the Kempners had a smaller scale, classic inside outsider, a family very much into maintaining the solidity of family. Moody's much sketchier kind of family that was faced with holding things together among the relatively weak family ideology and more as a problem of ma- managing the problems of sharing wealth. They're both about managing 
those problems objectively speaking, but subjectively speaking, most problems of most issues about wealth management were expressed in family terms in the Kemplers. And in the Moody's, as I recall, not. They were expressed as shares of whatever their family relations were like. They did not come to rest in a family culture or a, a structure of, of wealth that served the kind of family ideology. Consequently, I had more uh, access to the Kemplers because they were into being emphasizing family. Whereas the, Mo the Moody's were not, they were definitely family, but family was something mm, difficult to discuss. Working with the Kemplers, which was like working with them, I could go to New York or Princeton or someplace where a, a, a member of the family was, and I could talk to them it's like that. The Moody's, not so much. I think there was a big, there was a, a very large corporate battle going on in the Moody family, correct? Yeah, there's a fight over one of the firms or the main firm. Yeah, yeah. They had a, a patriarch, Mary Moody Northern, who was, I think, died during the course of my research. But they also had Sharon Moody, who was a controversial figure, and Robert Moody, who was more or less the solid businessman. Consequently, I, they're not as well studied by me. The Kempners were just designed to be studied as a family wealth think. That's an important difference. They had developed a family culture by their common interest of developing family through management of wealth that the Moody's, who were probably richer, did not. So therefore, it was like you couldn't work among them and talk as much about the family because it was a conflict-ridden, secret, this, that. The, I mean, there were, you know, controversies. Whereas in the Kempler family, I'm sure there were controversies too, but this kind of clanship, uh, if you want, that we <laughs> was much more developed in the management of the wealth. They had family meetings. They had an old inside-outsider who identified his own life with the life of the fortune, whereas the Moody's didn't have this sort of expertise, and they were split and so forth and so on. And there was scandal, some scandal, not me, from my point of view, not particularly meaningful, but the, it was just a whole different culture. That's what made it interesting to do comparatively. And there it was. You could go and most families study, not in a single community, but Galveston's very special because it had this extraordinary culture of wealth from the 19th century. And these were the two. There was also the Seeley family, but not as organized. But these two families were part of this culture of wealth that had been Galveston. And they sustained it. You could go to Galveston, a oh, decrepit community, even worse today. But would have these bank buildings, one representing the Keplers, one representing the Moody. And so it was perfect for anthropology. It was inner, very powerful intergenerational wealth within a very small community. That's not very common. It's not just com wealth of the scale of that community, but it was historically part of the, in the wave, the great accumulations of the 19th century that were playing, it was just about 100 years when I was studying them. And so I was the Shirtsleeves, the Shirtsleeves thing. I was studying these families at the height of their maturity. And I haven't followed them that closely since, but it was definitely in the 1980s that you had this third to fourth generation, either perpetuation. So what does it mean to return to Shirtsleeves? It doesn't mean that term is an ideological term favorable to an American system where, you know, great wealth is accumulated, but it should also disperse. It shouldn't become an aristocracy. But that's an ideological catch-all. But I thought it was important at that time because I was dealing with the end of that third generation. I think you mentioned that at one point. You said the tension in American society, at least, is that it's obviously the self-made man, the self-made family. You want to create a dynasty on the one side. And mm -hmm. so it's middle-class aspiration that often creates the aura around these families. But exactly, it also has to dissipate in order for it to be egalitarian. Yeah, to be part of middle-class culture. 
mean that exactly. The idea is if, if what really were, and you had the accumulation of an on, ongoing aristocracy in terms of, you might have that anyhow. You might have a, a sustained establishment upper. There's a lot of writing on this, the American upper class. But to the extent the dynasty forms it, it must turn over in this way, in terms of not necessarily the wealth dispersing, but the detachment of the family, detachment or the rearrangement of the family's relationship to this store of wealth, which in some cases does go on, but the family disappears or to very tenuous. But this was the period of, you know, like the end of the third generation for the late 19th century, both of the Moody and the Kempler represent, nationally speaking, minor fortunes, although they were part of where they vacationed and who they knew, et cetera, et cetera. They were on the fringes of or in the midst of the American moneyed upper class, definitely. They were regional members of it. That's also an anthropological thing. Who else would have studied this? They would. When I was doing this work, it was also a period in which Collier and Horowitz were publishing their dynastic books, and the, the great one that they did was the Rockefeller book. And then they did a couple of others, as I recall. There was, in the general culture in the late 20th century, a popular culture interest uh, I don't know about working class or underclass, but middle class interest in dynasty. This was the period when that you had that spate of TV programs. You can take it more, Dallas and so forth, you can take it more or less seriously. But the appeal of those programs in a pre-computer streaming age definitely reflected a positive orientation of the aspirant middle class or people that consume television. So there were elements very clear in popular culture. Also, when I would present my material, I wouldn't get, uh, except in certain leftover 60-ish environments, I wouldn't get opposition. What are you talking about this for? How can you be studying this? And I think if you just look within the last decade and a half, the whole repetition of the same thing, but now it's the upper 1%, the 99. That whole thing in terms of liberal youth culture has made this kind of study totally less, because doesn't share the popular culture for it is basically gone. Wealth accumulation is not, this is just an observation, not something I've studied, but wealth accumulation exists in an environment where inequality becomes the main thing. And that might be a very good thing. That's very noble or whatever. But it makes talking about the dynastic families and stuff, it's cre it, it's affected the narrative, is what I'm saying. Couldn't oh, do sure. that. You couldn't do it today. In the manner in which I did it. How does the idea of the dynastic overlap with the idea of the clan? Are those the same thing? Is that the same urge? Because as you said, the dynasty almost inevitably is going to die out. It's going to fade out. Whereas the clan is an idea of having something that continues beyond you. Sharing wealth in the absence of a kind of general cultural normative approval for it imposes burdens upon, you might say, now I'm viewing people who inherit wealth, but we're also talking about people who, have, who accumulate great wealth and have to pass it on. But the dynasty idea is culturally not a very strong supporter. And so they have to deal with, with the, the kind of cultural grounds being removed <laughs> from this not just activity, but situation in which some people find themselves as heirs to great wealth, right? And it's a community, those who share in or potentially share in the great wealth, and they have to, they take different positions. So that would be a kind of sociology of H-E-I-R-S, of heirs. I know Mr. Hughes there emphasizes flourishing, and he's a it's a unique thing in that you manage the wealth, but you also become interested in it 
as a kind of social phenomena close to people who accumulate it. But it's it's a challenge to give in terms of the response of the broader culture, not just the sub-community of people who actually share the wealth and face this as a life problem. But when I'm not one of those people, and when I write a book on wealth, I find that I would have to, I would be constrained by the, the ideologies about inequality today. This would be a very hard kind of book to write where it didn't conform to a particular ideology, which makes it hard to do because the reality is that they are reconstructing their own lives through the people who are members of these families through the inheritance of wealth. What was the response at the time? Oh, the re- given the fact that the Lies and Trust book is very academically written, it's a collection of materials that I wrote at different times, but none of it is written. I think it's written fairly well in terms of what passes for academic writing, but it's not like the Rockefeller book or anything. I think really that Peter Dobkin Hall now deceased, and he was very interested in the inheritance of wealth, but what he was a figure who became very well known in the study of nonprofits. And that's an allied field because that's one of the big arenas for where the wealth winds up in foundations and the idea of charity and so forth and so on. But he knew a great deal about these families, particularly the famous one. And his last chapter on the Rockefellers, what it was, they wanted to, what did they want to leave of themselves? And so what he wrote was an article about those who wrote about them. (laughs) It's an article, the, the last chapter of this book, is, which I admire greatly. It's about the family's own efforts to hire scholars to write family histories and what their responses were to the family histories. And this is literally where you get ideologies, feelings, the culture of holding and passing on great wealth. This is where you get the data. This is where you get testimony. And then, of course, when you also talk about Nelson Aldrich's book in Lies and Trust, and Nelson's family had hired someone to write a biography of the ancestor, but no one in the family, of course, read it. And then when he actually picked it up and read it is when he was stimulated to write his own book about his family, which is another classic. Yeah. There are a lot of untapped trails, too, a lot of untapped ideas For instance, the Nelson Aldrich book, he's now deceased, I think. He died last year. Yeah. He died last year. That was a that that book of essays was very stimulating to me. And I remember somebody at an American anthropological meeting who was a descendant of that fortune came up to me and was talking to me about that book. And I just remember her wanting to make the point to me in terms of gender relations, how the she made a, a difference in gender rela- which i pay no attention to at all which is would be a key theme now there's mm-hmm. one uh, there's a short article in there about sally bingham's revolt against the, there was a publishing family and revolt against the fortune by hiring her own expert to literally deconstruct it and it wasn't necessarily something that it was a ritual act that she was doing because the whole a key to the power of very often of these fortunes is who knows what, how open or closed is it, who takes the time to figure out how the wealth flows at any point in time. And very often there is the role of gender, which I totally ignored, basically, is extremely interesting. And she was saying something to me at these meetings that I never forgot about. The managers of family wealth within the family whoever they turned out to be, were fearful that they were extraordinarily power, came across as extraordinarily powerful people. They controlled the family mana, if you want. And the women in the family tended to be not fading violets or anything, but tend to be affected. There was a kind of power relation there that subordinated women. It wasn't that explicit, but that's what she was expressing. And the Sally Bingham story is a fascinating one. 
how she repositioned herself in the family. She went out and hired her own experts. It was a perfectly nice family, but in the dissolution of the fortune, it created these problems. You wrote a book called Ocasio, which is a series of letters and exchanges with a member of the Portuguese nobility. And I've always thought that it's unique book and a wonderful book. And I'd yeah, love to hear you. the story of how that came about and, and maybe tell us a little bit about what the book is. Funnily enough, I was at an anthropology conference in Portugal in the late, very late 1990s, in which I presented a paper on the studying of elites. And I dealt with some of the material from my dynasty study in the 1990s in the United States. And the conference was held in Lisbon at, a, at the palace of the Marquis, the Marquez of Frontera and Alorna. And it was a most amazing place, full of tiles and decrepit statues in the gardens. And this very small man running around, very interested in the conference. And it turned out to be the Marquez. And during the course of the conference, he invited me to come back and do this study. He made this wonderful distinction of saying that you inherit this house and you can That's you have key. to have your own personality. You can decorate it, but you don't own the house. Right. And there's a sense of very long term, yeah. which is uh, also echoed in the American experience of the dynasty. But of course, we don't have that because we don't have an aristocracy. Yeah, but the this palace it was a, a living artwork. There's a book on it. Their scholars have studied the iconography of the tiles, etc. So the house was much greater than anything in the family. So you invest everything in the house. And historically speaking, the idea of nobility and its, at least in Europe and its permanence, has to do with the house. Now the house can literally be the clan, like I was talking about in Tonga, or it could literally be a place in which monuments, which is just full of material meanings. And this is, if you saw his palace, this is. Everything had this incredible meaning. It was almost like real for him. The tile work, the artwork. I wrote a piece on, more recently, on the materiality of wealth. And the thing about very wealthy people who depend upon the places in which they live, particularly in the world outside its environment, it's this, that, the other. There's this really sacralization of the, the materiality of place. And he was a perfect example, because if we were in the house, sitting in one of his dark rooms, heavily furnished, et cetera, which I found incredibly stuffy. I, I really, it was always done with the mill, and then after the mill, it'd be two hours. But if we were outside sitting on the porch, we had our conversation, but his eye was constantly watching the stuff in the garden, the sculptures, the famous history of his house had an inside story and an outside story. But this was an opportunity to see how the materiality of owning something like that has more than just luxury. It really had a deeply connective issue. Anyhow, when we interviewed, we always interviewed within, we went to the north of Portugal, the Ponte de Lima, and this is where all, it's still a stronghold of all the aristocrats. And I remember going with him, and same deal, we'd go in, we'd have a dinner, then we have these long discussions with the aristocrats, and wow, talking to them amid their, in their places, in their old houses, was qualitatively different from talking to them in another context or pursuing this inquiry in another context. It was immensely enhanced by being in these environments. And it's a kind of simplistic thing. Of course, there's an object, they'll talk about it, but no, they were distracted by, or at least Fernando was distracted by constantly. So there was something, the idea that these gardens with these various things were very much alive for him. Do you feel like they're isolated by it as well? Oh, definitely. But this guy... 
obviously this thing would not come about if he didn't make the overture. So this guy had a little TV program. He was during the period of the revolution. He was called the Red Marquis because I think he was on the left. I think when they had their revolution, he had to go to Marrakesh for a few weeks. They had to go into exile, but they came back. It's a very, as you can imagine, it's fun for the if you're a tourist or something. It's a really deep into the connections of Portugal. And not if you're a tourist, maybe for appreciating the historic Portugal. But but he had this desire to re- renew the nobility in some way. And that was a huge uh, advantage for me during this period. So it ended a little ambiguously. We followed through everything. We finally had a conference in the palace of the various nobles of Portugal, people who held titles coming. And they came from they have very different walks of life. Somebody holds a very high title, but he's a newspaper cartoonist or something. Others live on the southern coast of Portugal and live these, you know. Anyhow, we had it. It was a weird kind of conference. There was a combination, the academics that I brought, who were specialists in looking at European nobilities, felt the Portuguese nobility was debased. They weren't culturally maintaining themselves in as interesting a fashion as, let's say, the English nobility. So you had this judgment on the part of the academics. And then you did have the acting out of the nobles. They would stand up and rather than asking an interesting question, would recite the genealogy of their houses. And the younger ones were the worst, not the older ones, but the younger ones would stand up. And so the whole thing was weird and could have, and we recorded everything. We got Tonga, Galveston, Portugal. Yeah. Do you find commonalities across these three oh. very different cultures? What did I learn by these three experiences compared to one another? I think we were addressing it a little bit when we were talking about going from Polynesia to Galveston. Also, the culture changed. But I didn't know what the culture was in the early 2000s, but we were already... It, it's been very important on what audiences that you can address, right? A lot of people... There, there are still an audience out there, a general audience for dynasty sagas. They're published all the time, based sagas. The environment for receiving them, let's say in a general readership, or even in a scholarly one, has changed dramatically. When I was doing it, I'm interested in equality and inequality, but that was not the dominant theme and that you could study these phenomenon for themselves, but not with that inflection. I could be criticized for that because they would say, even at that time, that was a huge issue. But in the broader society, American society, the one in which I was producing this work, the reception, if you want, for work like this was quite different. It was much more accepting of the study of elites for themselves and not as a very a politicized condemnation of inequality. And now you can't treat them like classic anthropological subjects. That Even articulating this, I could have trash rained down on me. <laughs> it's really just changed so much. But that's not the reason why I look at it or don't look at it, but it is when you write something and argue something within a certain framework. You have this very interesting concept called the dynastic uncanny. Could you explain that one to us? The I, And really, in the, of course, it's what hit in the letters. It carries over with the marquee. He was fascinated by that. So he, he is it just uh, a thing you throw out and t- it sounds good, et cetera? What does it really mean? No, what it means is there's an intimate aspect of dynastic continuity, if it works, which gets into the way dis- descendants or inheritors define themselves. And so the dynastic uncanny is not this family story that you take after your father or mother or predecessor, but that you yourself as a developing individual, whether you like it or not, it's it's in you. 
and it's not like a family story or part of the folklore. It's some. It's an intimate kind of thing, and most people have this kind of uh, story in their development. I, for all that matter, most people in most families have these kinds of stories, but they become they can become very important kind of below the intimate family kind of stories you take after your father or you take at, but it doesn't become a full-fledged family ideology because then it becomes something that you can oppose or disagree it's something that you feel in yourself now the person who really globbed onto this or took it in was the marquez he really saw a lot of the way he thought about family as very personally, he wasn't a particularly self and totally self involved. Although, yeah, there was that, and I've seen it in, in the Kempners and others. But it's something the dynastic uncanny is fun to point to, but it's hard to talk about because once you begin to talk about the well, Kempners have always been like this, or this has been true through the various things, it's more intimate than that. Yeah. It's a great concept. And it was in the, the boy who died recently. Last Nelson year. Aldrich. Yeah, Nelson Aldrich. I met him once. It, it, that was a key idea in his book, actually. The Dynastic and Uncanny. I, he didn't call it the Dynastic Uncanny, but it was that the continuity of this kind of thing. It's reinforced all sorts of ways socially, but its most powerful existence is in you look in a mirror, <laughs> it's in the definition of your own person. You noted that the therapeutic construction of the family, which of course has only become more probably us psychoanalytic, obviously now, but is still a very much important way that families construct themselves up to the point that it has infused wealth management. Yes. That I've wealth managers use these terms to help the family construct an identity. Yeah, which is well, not a role you it, probably would have seen forty years well, ago. I heard, I I can see what you're saying because when I every once in a while I've been talked to these companies that or these firms that do ideological management of wealth that they're part of wealth management, money management, but they are subsections of people who are developing the kind of sociology and psychology of like the Youth Foundation, but it's unique in terms of its own. He has his own personal stamp, but at some degree, it's professionalized. And the therapeutic is a huge aspect of it, is an important aspect of it, because people come to see themselves as belonging to collectives, not in the in a different way in which they think of themselves as persons. It's much more subtle. So indeed, the idea of the dynastic uncanny, where you What's most powerful is not somebody telling you you have the family, conceptualizing it for you, but it works off of the idea that you have become, you're surprised at a certain point that you are a part of something that you've grown into and weren't aware of. And then what happens with my experience of people going into therapy, usually there's some sort of family conflict going on, but they go into therapy and they develop. I, I might say, I haven't talked to therapists about it, but they develop what I've been calling this idea of the dynastic uncanny as the basis of doing therapy. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Marcus. And let me just thank you for writing a book that I consider a major contribution to understanding wealth in America. Thank you for asking. This has been fun. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and take a minute to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.